Good evening, listeners. February 17th, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lillian Paget-Cobb. And I'm Daniel Watkins. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of those students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live and any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight we are joined by Ashley Mickelson, a master's student from the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife. Ashley is studying the northern spotted owl and how the abundance of a stress-related hormone called corticosterone is associated with higher levels of disease and mortality in the northern spotted owl population. Hey, Ashley. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us more about what it is that you do as part of your research? Yes. So I am taking owl, uh, owl feathers collected over approximately 20 years, and we are extracting the hormone you mentioned. It's corticosterone. It's associated with the natural stress response in all uh, vertebrate animals. And we're measuring that against environmental challenges that our northern spotted owls face, hoping to derive some patterns out of that and see if we can figure out what might be causing some of the declines that we see over their range. Great. So can you tell us more about this hormone, corticosterone, and is there an analog of this in perhaps other species that can be it can be compared to? Yes, so corticosterone is a hormone released from the brain and there is an analog to it in humans which is cortisol. They're extremely closely related. Um, the actual physical structure of them is almost the exact same. And basically any uh, individual animal organism with a spine uh, experiences stress in much the same way, where something happens in their environment, your brain kind of freaks out, we've all experienced that, and it starts releasing a hormone through your bloodstream, and that is what causes things like your heart rate to increase, your breathing to increase when you start sweating. So it's basically the exact same thing, um, in whether you're talking about spotted owls or humans or any other animal. And when you're looking at levels of this hormone, what are some of the things you have to keep in mind? Like, is it only there when the animal is stressed? No, it's there all the time. So part of this system, it's very complex to try and sort through all of the different things that are going on. But this hormone is basically present in your body at all times. And even when you're not stressed, your body is using it to regulate your fluid balance. And it can sometimes either increase or suppress your appetite. It does a lot of different things. But it's when it is present in your body at um, higher than regular uh, concentrations, that's when you start seeing those other, the actual stress response that we come to think of, like 
as I mentioned before, the increased heart rate and breathing and sweating and things like that. So the way that you measure the corticosterone is what sounds like a fairly involved process. Could you walk us through it? Yes, it is fairly involved. So the first thing you need to do is uh, collect feathers from an individual. And we do that when we're marking and banding our, our owls. And then you have to take it to a lab and you have to cut it up into tiny little pieces or grind it. And then you use ethanol to extract the steroid out of the tiny little feather pieces. And then you add a, another molecule that binds to the corticosterone. It's radioactively marked. And then you run that through a gamma counter and you can count um, by how many radioactive molecules are in there, how many molecules of the stero uh, steroid hormone that you have. So you're looking at the hormone that's present in the feathers, and how do you go about obtaining the feathers in the first place? What was that process of obtaining that sample? Yeah, so as I mentioned, um, my project is part of a larger project that's monitoring the, over, the population of northern spotted owls throughout their range from Canada down to northern California. And part of that study is capturing and banding and marking individuals so that they can be identified. And while we have them in hand, we ha either collect feathers that are naturally shed because they're always um, dropping and growing new feathers like we do hair. And or if they don't have any feathers that naturally fall out, you can pluck a few off of their body, um, like pulling hairs off of a head, your head. So that's how we actually collect them. Okay. So, so this is a relatively new way of measuring the hormone. Um, how did people used to do it? Uh, people used this. So measuring the hormone has actually been around for a while. Um, they, it's very well studied in humans. Um, that's how one of the things that they do when they test for drugs, they take a hair sample, um, and you can also test for all kinds of other hormones and molecules in the body that way. They've been using it in other animals for ecology or physiology by extracting blood, or you can also get it from fecal matter, but getting it out of keratinized structures such as um, hair, feathers, and nails in animals is a relatively new technique. And that has the an advantage over pulling it from blood, is that right? Uh, I believe so. Um, the advantage of using something like a feather or hair is that it can be collected passively. So while we aren't collecting our feathers passively because we are banding them, there is an option that you can just collect feathers that are naturally shed, or if there's a bird that is nesting, they most birds line their nests with their own feathers that they pluck. And so after the nesting season is over, you could go in and collect those feathers. So you would never have to actually interact with the animal, bother them, or stress them out yourself. You could just do it all passively. So one thing I'm wondering is you have sort of two portions of your project. And one of them is comprised of the field work. And can you tell us more about what the field work consists of and what you might do during a typical trip out? Yeah, so during my typical field season, which runs from March to August or September, depending on sort of how the summer goes, 
I work from 2 p.m. to midnight, and I spend my days alone hiking through the forest, making owl noises, hooting, hoping to hear a response. And then if I do hear a response, I use the sound to locate the owl, and then I have to capture it and band it if it's not already banded. Um, And then we monitor that area to see if that owl is part of a pair, if they are nesting, if they nest, how many young they fledge, and we will ban those as well. And then at night, um, I do something similar, although we're usually working from roads at night rather than hiking around in the forest. But So you mentioned that you are working in central Washington. So you're walking through the forest trails. What is that habitat look like? In the area where I work, which is in central Washington on the east slopes of the Cascades, it's very untypical northern spotted owl um, habitat types. It's very dry, ponderosa pine and Douglas fir. It's fairly open. It's not what people typically think or usually find images of on the internet when you read or look up northern spotted owls. They are usually um, pictured in the coastal ranges where there's lots of green ferns and lots of shrubs and they're in very large uh, old growth trees. And that's just not what we see or experience on the east slopes of the Cascades. But we are also right sort of on the eastern edge of their natural range. And so we're not their typical uh, forest type that they're associated with. So why is it that the Forest Service is interested in tracking the numbers of spotted owls? Uh, Northern spotted owls were listed as federally threatened in 1990. Um, Mostly the belief was due to forest loss because of the extensive logging that was happening in the Pacific Northwest at that time. And so part of the obligation of having a a species listed as threatened is that you have to monitor the population numbers. And so that is what we are doing, uh, hoping to see some sort of change in trajectory from them decreasing to becoming stable or increasing. And And, go ahead. (laughs) Uh, So when you're on a trip, How many birds do you expect to encounter? I mean, how many birds are we talking about in terms of the population in this sort of this range that you study? So my study area consists of the Cleelum Ranger District, which is um, approximately 689 square miles large. And typically over the past couple years, our numbers have consisted of a around 20 individuals in that entire area, which is a huge decrease. Um, In 1992, there was around 120 individuals and 45 active nests. And so we've seen a huge drop in their population around that area. So I don't get a lot of responses and I don't plan on encountering a lot of birds when I'm out. It's a lot of silence. So you mentioned that Originally, they were listed because of concerns with logging. Are there any other competing or associated hypotheses? Yes, and I don't know that I would say competing. Um, I would say, yeah, definitely more associated. So the, the logging was the original reason that people became very concerned about them, and they got looked at and got listed as threatened. But one other threat that we have seen sort of emerge over the past couple years or decades, I guess I should say, um, 
is the barred owl, which is, was previously only on the east coast of the United States, but has since made its way over into Canada, um, to the west coast, and then down south throughout the range of the northern spotted owl. And it is widely believed that they are competing and competing with the northern spotted owl and causing con contributing to their declines. So what is it about the barred owl that's allowed them to enter into the same territory? We are not sure. Um, there's a lot of thoughts about why that is. One of the most popular ones is that it was human mediated, but there's no actual, we don't have evidence to say for sure if they just naturally um, expanded and came over here around the same time as humans do or humans did. But um, one belief is that humans sort of creating towns and cities in the Midwest where usually there was just rolling plains and prairies, so not a lot of trees for them to be nesting in. And when cities grew up and they planted trees that created little islands of habitat and they were able to hop across the country and make it back over to the West Coast. So one thing you mentioned earlier was that you can't necessarily establish cause and effect, but you can look at the relationships and find patterns. And so this idea that as the barred owl population increased in at the same time, the northern spotted owl population was decreasing. So it's sort of this relationship between the two factors. Yes, and it's it's just a very hard relationship to parse out because, as I said, it was originally believed that um, they were declining due to logging, and it's just it's a hard relationship to parse out because just because you stop logging doesn't mean that the problem goes away because they're associated with these very mature, complex forests that take a hundred years to regenerate. So just because you have stopped cutting those down or slowed the process of cutting those down it doesn't mean that everything goes away. And so then when you have the addition of this owl, this other owl that has come over and it's larger, it's more aggressive, and it has a wider, has abilities to survive in a wider variety of habitat types and off of a lot uh, wider variety of foods, you have uh, several problems confronting you all at once. And so saying which is the actual problem or which is the largest contributor to the problem is hard to parse out because they're all interacting together. Um, and it's very likely that those competing owls are kind of pushing the northern spotted owls out of some of the best habitat into marginal areas. And so if there's um, a lower percentage of the land is covered by forest anyways that just continues to limit where the spotted owls can actually go. You had mentioned that earlier with the hormone that the biology is extremely complicated and this gets to the idea of also not being able to parse out the relationship in that where you maybe have a high concentration of the hormone, the stress-associated hormone in the female birds, it leads to a higher concentration of that hormone in the eggs. And can you talk about that, that complex biological relationship? 
Absolutely. So it is true. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this hormone is involved with so many different processes in your in your body. And then in addition to that, there is a lot of work showing that females that are under stress while they're reproducing, whether they are birds or mammals, they will sort of shunt some of that stress off into the, the offspring because they are connected. So if you are a female living in a very challenging environment, your hormone concentrations are going to be fairly high. And so your offspring are going to have fairly high concentrations of the hormone as well. And there's quite a bit of evidence also showing that once you your brain is exposed to this hormone, it reacts more readily to challenges in the future. So you end up with this sort of cycle where you get exposed to the hormone, your brain becomes more sensitive to it in the future, and then every time something happens, you react more quickly, you release more of this hormone, and that makes your brain even more sensitive. And so any sort of adverse effects that are associated with that sort of can, can compound over time. And it becomes a very, um, very complex thing. But one way that we are trying to address that is um, my study is focusing just on juvenile spotted owls. And in that way, we're only comparing individuals that are of a similar, um, similar size, similar point in life. And so you kind of re, uh, you get rid of some of those more complex, long-term physiology complications. So what are some of the things that you've noticed in your data set? So, um, so far, I'm very, I'm still in the beginning stages of doing analysis on my data set. Um, I'm just in the beginning looking at some very basic things, but so far already I've found some pretty interesting patterns in that, or I should say lack thereof. Um, we don't really see a pattern between male and female juveniles, which you see in a lot of other bird species and even in some other mammal species where one sex will tend to have a higher concentration than the others, and we do not see that. Another thing that is commonly used in birds as sort of a metric of health is their weight or mass. And we also don't see any sort of um, pattern between mass and the hormones we have extracted mm -hmm. from our juvenile feathers, which is kind of cool, even though it's all about lack of patterns. That means that any patterns we are seeing so far can't be explained by some of those more basic physiology that you might expect sure. it to be, such as sex and weight. So it's more likely that any patterns we might see emerge are probably being driven by exterior environment rather than interior biology. You had mentioned also that there's potentially the sibling relationship between some of the young birds, mm -hmm. um, and you don't necessarily see a pattern there either. No, I just looked at that today <laughs> and yesterday, and you would it, it, the theory behind that would be that um, siblings are rivals. It's whoever is begging more or loud more loudly gets whatever the parents are delivering so eggs take quite a bit of time to produce because they are around a third of an individual's body weight so they are they take some time to 
make and get laid. And so siblings tend to be hours to days apart. And you would expect the sibling that hatches first to be sort of ahead of the game and outcompete their younger um, their younger sibling. But so far from what um, my my data shows is that there's not a consistent pattern between siblings uh, a sibling that weighs more and their extracted corticosterone. And even siblings that were of an equal weight when they were banded and sampled, sometimes they are very close in their hormone levels and sometimes they're very different. So we're not seeing a consistent pattern there either. So how far along are you in your program? You're a master's student, and how much longer do you have, and how much more work do you expect to do on this project that you're on? Um, I have approximately, hopefully, one year left. How much work I'm going to do on this project is kind of a hard question to ask because I my master's sort of stemmed from me being a regular field worker on the project. And so even after I graduate, um, I will most likely still be working on the project itself. And I spend six months out of the year doing that field work, um, still collecting data that won't be put towards my master's per se, but still contributing to the monitoring of the species. So I foresee myself doing plenty more work on the project, but my master's hopefully will be wrapped up in around a year. So you didn't start out working with owls. Could you take us through how you ended up on this project? Sure. Um, So I did my undergrad at the University of Montana. I also studied wildlife there. And I got my first wildlife job there through volunteering on a graduate student's um, project with uh, snowshoe hares. So I worked on snowshoe hares, doing something similar to what I do now, um, trapping, marking individually, and doing population monitoring. Um, And then when I graduated, I moved back to Washington State, where I worked on some restoration projects. I did a little bit of botany work. And eventually through sort of the network of wildlife, um, my supervisor on on the botany job knew that I wanted to do wildlife. He connected me with someone that needed some small small mammal trapping to be done. And it just so happened that the small mammal, mammal trapping was related to northern spotted owl work. And so the guy I did work there kind of helped me find this job and gave me a reference. So I just sort of like, I guess, worked my way up the forest ladder where I started with small mammal prey items and botany and then worked up to sort of a predator level, so. Was there something during your undergrad that you can point to as a target for what set you on your current path, some activity or sort of opportunity? Yes, um, it was basically just volunteering, volunteering and definitely being out there and being available. Um, I spent a lot of my time as an undergrad volunteering on this project, um, giving up weekends and it was really fun work. So I don't I shouldn't say like I gave up all my weekends like it was torture, but it wasn't always fun to get done with a week of school and then head out into the mountains and go hiking in the rain or snow. But it 
I proved myself to the the crew leader and they ended up offering me a job and um, the job was under a really uh, a really cool professor who does a lot of really cool work in my field and having him as a reference on my resume I think has gone a long way so just being getting out there volunteering and letting people know that I was interested in the work and was there to stay. Hmm. That that attitude of going and, and talking to other people and trying to make connections also helped you get to Oregon State, is that right? It did. So I ended up in my master's position now because I, as I mentioned, was working just as a field worker on the Northern Spotted Owl Project, but I knew I wanted to go and get my master's. I didn't know when, I didn't know where, but I knew I wanted to go back to school. And my crew leader and um, an old crew leader that knows my my bo- knew my bosses sort of whispered in their ear that I wanted to pursue grad school. And from that, um, my two bosses on the Northern Spotted Owl project became my advisors here at OSU because the project is a collaboration between Oregon State University, the Forest Service, the State Park Service, um, National Park Service, and BLM. So it's got a wide scope that touches OSU. So even though I was in Central Washington working with the Forest Service, I ended up here. So looking forward, what do you want to be doing after you're finished with your master's? Oh, I don't know. Um, I think my husband is listening, so I don't want to say like, oh, PhD, because I'm sure he'll just roll his eyes like, oh, gosh. But um, I do eventually, I think, want to go and do a PhD. I just love science. I love asking questions and trying to get to the bottom of things. And I feel the higher, um, higher degree you have, the more autonomy you have. And so I would like to be able to ask my own questions and not be dictated as much as by someone else telling me what I'm going to ask and investigate. But immediately when I graduate, I think I'm going to take some time off uh, from school anyways and just work and pursue and see what else is out there for me. Um, And maybe it will lead right back here. Who knows? But I've done fairly well without having a solid plan, and I don't want to jinx that by suddenly changing things up and trying to live a structured life. Well, speaking of higher education, we have a tradition here on Inspiration Dissemination of asking our guests for some advice. And as I understand it, you have some advice for others that are trying to attain a degree of higher education. I do. I do. Um, So one of the things that's kind of really come around to bite me in the butt in my own master's is I did not study physiology when I was an undergrad. I had to take, I think, probably only one or two classes and was very irritated about having to take them because I didn't think I would ever need them. And then my master's project got presented to me and I told my advisor, like, I'm not a physiologist. I'm not a microbiologist. This is not my thing. And he was like, you'll figure it out. You'll learn it. That's what masters are for. So I guess if you're in your undergrad and you're just kind of studying away and you think you know where you're going and you think you know what you're going to be doing for sure and you think you know what classes you need to be focusing on, I would say you should rethink that because you never know and you're probably not going to turn down a job offer or a master's or PhD project just because that's not 
exactly what you thought you would be studying. And I've actually really grown to love what I study, and I think it's very interesting. So definitely don't write off your classes just because you don't think you're going to use them. I just had to retake a physiology course. (laughs) (laughs) The other tradition we have on the show is we play you out with a song of your choosing. And can you tell us what you selected and why? I selected um, The Joker and the Thief by Wolfmother. And I'm leaving the studio here to go play an inner tube water polo game. We actually have two games back to back tonight. It's going to be intense. So I wanted like a good song to get me pumped up and ready to go and play water polo until like 10 o'clock tonight. Yeah, that's excellent. All right, cool. Thank you so much, Ashley, for coming on the show. Yes, thank you for having me. This is Joker and the Thief by Wolfmother. Mother.